Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Two thousand eighteen is in the bag, pretty much, and it really zipped by, didn't it? Seems like just yesterday that we were all braving the winter weather in Denver during the ALA Midwinter Meeting in February, or enjoying the sights, sounds, and food in balmy New Orleans during our annual conference in June. Now these conferences and meetings—they're the highlight of our years. Everyone here at ALA and Dewey Decibel, because it's a time that we get to connect with you, the library community, and you, our listeners. It's also when we get to talk to some of our favorite writers, actors, activists, thinkers, and more who come to these events as our featured speakers. But before they talk to you, the gathered attendees, they talk to us in intimate one-on-one interviews. Today, on the Dewey Decibel Podcast, we share some of these moments with you. So sit back, relax at the end of the year, and listen to actor Sally Field, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Poet Elizabeth Acevedo, writers Jonathan Eig and Robert Feisler, and activists Marley Diaz and Patrice Cullors discuss the inspirations behind their new books and the importance of libraries and books in their lives. But first, a word from a sponsor. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Of course you are. Then join me at the American Library Association's Midwinter Meeting and Exhibition in Seattle, Washington on Saturday, January 26th at 11 a.m. for So You Want to Podcast, a panel discussion that I'm hosting on the Pop Top stage in the exhibit hall. You can hear me and several other library podcasters, well, just talk about podcasting, how we got into it, what were our inspirations, what kind of equipment do we use, uh, how do we promote and brand our podcasts? How did we talk our colleagues and higher-ups administrators into taking a risk and letting us talk on air for hours and hours on end? And also, we'll have tips on how you can start your own podcast. So, join us Saturday, January 26, 11 a.m. for So You Want to Podcast on the Pop Top stage. And also, don't forget, there is still time to register for the ALA Midwinter Meeting. Join us for five days of panels, forums, and speakers, including Melinda Gates, Rick Steves, and many more. And of course, don't forget the podcast panel. You can visit 2019.alamidwinter.org for more information and to register. I'll see you there. What drives people to write, be it a biography or autobiography, a novel or a nonfiction book or poetry? Near everything, as you'll hear. Sally Field told us in New Orleans that she prepared for her autobiography in pieces, using the same skills and techniques that guide her craft as an actor. To, to do this, I, I had to call on uh, my information as an actor, um, of what I've learned um, as an actor of the, about the process, the creative process, about my own process. And I know about that, and I was able to, you know, uh, employ that understanding in this in, in other words just to make just to be very simplistic when you when you go to work on any role you're very excited about it whether it be a classic classical role or a, or a brand new script and you think this is great this is great and then you go to work on it you begin to actually break down the character and how it fits together and you begin to build a character behind it it all falls apart and there will be the moment you go what was I thinking 
At first, it all falls, you drizzles through your fingers and you've got nothing. And it is in that nothing that something begins. And I had to learn how to employ that panic and rely on that panic to um, allow the, the building to begin. In Denver, Bill Nye the Science Guy told us that inspiration for his book Jack and the Geniuses, which he co-authored with Gregory Moon, came from books he read as a child. So I had, when I was a kid though, you, know, you may be familiar with Nancy Drew or uh, the Hardy Boys, but a lesser known title was Tom Swift, Tom Swift Jr. And I grew up reading every Tom Swift Jr. book. Because uh, it was just cool, his flying lab, his outpost in space, his atomic birth, earth blaster. And so I wanted kids to have the same experience. Elizabeth Acevedo told us in Denver that she credits her youth, family, and environment growing up for giving her the inspiration to write both her poetry and her new novel, Poet X, which won a National Book Award for Young People's Literature this year. I got involved in writing and performing my poetry at a very young age. I come from a family of storytellers. My mother's an incredible storyteller and would put me to bed with all these stories of growing up in the Dominican Republic. My grandfather only had a third grade education, but would tell these long, complicated riddles for like 30 minutes. And my father loves telling jokes and they always had these amazing punchlines. They were never dad jokes, they're way inappropriate. But I grew up listening to this oral history and so my storytelling and probably the reason I perform is because I come from folks who pass down all these lessons and these jokes and these histories via this art form. I think I grew up, and I don't know where this message came from, if it was cultural, if it was my neighborhood, if it was national, at what level, but I do think that I felt like I had to be silenced. I grew up with two older brothers and they could be loud and they could move as they wanted to and they could make mistakes and it was fine. And for me, I didn't have that same ability. And I grew up in a tough neighborhood where you would get catcalled, where violence happened all the time and it was, it was normed. And so I think a lot of my work is influenced by thinking through what are the messages we've received that have told us to be quiet and that we as women are the receivers of pain and violence and how do we use our voices and our bodies and our communities to say that's not how it has to be. Activist Marley Dias, who made headlines for the hashtag 1000 Black Girls book campaign that she started, wrote her book Marley Dias Gets It Done and So Can You as a reaction to what she couldn't find on bookshelves as a young African-American reader. She explained it to us in Denver. So seeing yourself in the books that you read is really important because it develops a strong sense of identity and it makes you feel as though you were valued. And that shows that our lives do matter. And I talk a lot about that in the book and I feel as though I've been able to be so confident and to speak you know, eloquently because I see myself. And I've always believed ever since I was two when I first started reading that I could be whatever I wanted to be and that there were people out there who were working hard to make sure that I could be strong, brave, confident, I could be a doctor, an archaeologist, I could be a paleontologist or whatever I wanted to be because I knew the power of myself and the power of black girls. So seeing myself in books created a mirror where I understood the potential I have and the potential of my sisters. Patrice Colors, artist, activist, and co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, told us in Denver that she wrote her book when They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, 
because of what she was witnessing every day in America. Uh, I wrote When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir because I was witnessing uh, the polarization of, in our country around uh, Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. It was the moment in 2016 when our organization was called a terrorist organization. And I knew that wasn't true. And I knew that uh, my intentions and intentions for our movement was to bring um, peace and love and generosity and care for uh, black people, but also our allies across the country and the world. And someone came to me and said, hey, you sound like you got a book in you. I didn't really believe them, but I entertained the, the idea. I went to a, another friend who said, hey, you should talk to Asha and see if she can help you. And the minute I got on the phone with Asha, she said, yes, let's make the most beautiful book we could ever make. Some of our guests were inspired to cast new eyes on public figures or to write about events overlooked by history. Jonathan Eig was prompted to write Ali, A Life, a new biography of Baksha Muhammad Ali out of necessity, but found that it meant much more, as he told us in New Orleans. After writing my book about the birth control pill, I was beginning to search for the next subject and was talking to Jane Levy, who was working on a book about Babe Ruth, and we were talking about Babe Ruth's importance in history, and I said, other than Muhammad Ali, he's clearly the most important athlete in, in American history, and as the words were coming out of my mouth, I, I thought, wow, Muhammad Ali, I don't think there's been a, a real biography of Ali yet. And my, I immediately, as soon as I hung up with Jane as fast as I could to go check to see when the last book about Muhammad Ali was written and realized that there had never been an unauthorized biography. So that was stunning to me. When I began this book, I knew Ali's story was relevant because it was about race, it's about religion, it's about politics, it's about war, you know, which, what wars should we be fighting? So many things. I didn't know how relevant it was going to be. I didn't know that you'd have this issue with Colin Kaepernick and the NFL swirling around. If people are mad at Colin Kaepernick. Can you imagine trying to picture how mad they were at Muhammad Ali in the 60s when he joined the Nation of Islam and when he refused to fight in Vietnam? So the, the times we're living in, I mean, Ali thought he had won in these, some of these battles and we're still fighting them. Also in New Orleans, Robert W. Feisler told us that he wrote his book, Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation when he discovered that the 1973 event had been long forgotten by the community for many reasons. Sure, I first learned about the event around end of 2013, beginning of 2014. So there was a professor at my journalism school where I was graduating from named Nicholas Lemon who had grown up in New Orleans. He was actually a baby reporter at an alt-weekly called the Vieux Carré Courier. And he would talk fondly about those years in his journalistic career and a mentor he had who was actually a gay guy in the early 1970s named Bill Rushton. And I was telling Professor Lemon about a fire that had happened at a Catholic church uh, that had been started by the KKK in my hometown. And he asked me, just as an ancillary sort of the way uh, conversations progress, have you heard about the upstairs lounge fire? Uh, 32 people died. It was this terrible event. It was at a gay bar. And I said, no, I'd never heard of it. And I was shocked. It was this gap in my knowledge of gay history that it skipped over from the Stonewall riots or the Stonewall Rebellion. It's sometimes called, like, I like riots because it's more punk rock, um, in 1969, all the way to the assassination of Harvey Milk 
in the late 70s and I realized that there was this whole foundational era of the gay rights movement and what was called gay liberation at that point in time that I had no knowledge of and that in a sense this event, the Upstairs Lounge Fire, was really a seminal very important moment for that early movement. So I had to find out more. Um, I remember I called Professor Lemon when I was first in New Orleans and I said, can you tell me a bit more about your knowledge and uh, how you understand of what happened? And you were in New Orleans in the summer of 1973 and I'm starting to find stories that you published in the Vieux Carré Courier that happened side by side. Coverage of the upstairs lounge by your mentor, Bill Rushton. And he said, I don't know. I just have this hazy understanding. I can't even explain it. And I was fascinated because this is an articulate man. This is a man with an intense grasp of his past, um, a very loving per view of his time at the Via Carre Courier. And I began to sense that if he couldn't remember, and this was something reportorial instinct that was going to guide me towards, but that I had a sense other people were not going to be able to remember exactly what happened with this terrible fire that happened in June 1973 that in a sense was a shock um, to New Orleans and to Creole culture that had plowed, um, plowed their gay community into a kind of underground for decades, if not centuries. So I sensed through Professor Lemon's answer that there was a kind of collective amnesia about this event, or as if a sort of veil had been draped over the, the memory of a city, where for a long span of time, people either did not want to remember what happened here, or it was not deemed okay to remember. Unsurprisingly, the library was, and still is, a place of importance in the lives of our past guests. Here's Bill Nye. When I was growing up, the problem was getting enough sources of information. <clears throat> but now the problem is getting enough good sources. There's so much information, a lot of which is almost certainly not true that we have to get kids, and this is where a librarian would come and get young people able to sort the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. And okay, wheat from the chaff, if you're gluten-free, okay, you know what I mean, the stuff you want from the stuff you don't want. And the classic example for me, and I've written about it in the other books, is uh, the tree octopus. I love the tree octopus. If you're a teacher out there, have your kids look up the tree octopus. Fantastic. Elizabeth Acevedo. So I, I got to do a presentation at the National Library of Kosovo, and that was incredible. They had these headphones that they would um, have it translated real time. And so I had to like work on my pacing, and that was great. And in Washington, D.C., I've done a good amount. I was an intern at the Library of Congress. So I got to do some of the behind the scenes there, and I got to do workshops at different public libraries in D.C. So. I get to use the spaces that exist in, in you know, these cities to get my story across. Jonathan Eig. I grew up in the Finkelstein Memorial Library in Spring Valley, New York. We had very few books in my house. I think we had three books and, and a world book encyclopedia. Um, everything came from the library, so I just plowed through the library. I, I wish I, I, like the library had a record. I could see what I borrowed because I was borrowing dozens of books, you know, every week. I would just take them out and, you know, sort through them when I got home and figure out which ones I wanted to read. And records, too. I, I went through the, the jazz collection at my library alphabetically. I would just took out every record in the jazz collection. 
Um, and now, of course, I do a ton of research at libraries, and you know, librarians and archivists are my best friends. I spend as much time trying to make friends with, with librarians as I do with the sources who I'm writing about, because they're, they're, they're huge helps to me, and, and they work for free uh, you know, uh, for a writer who's on a, a small budget to have a librarian who's willing to help you with research, who gets excited about the research, and sometimes who you know, digs things up that you didn't even dream of finding, that's just glorious, so uh, it's a big part of my life. And finally, Sally Field. Wow, well, you know, libraries are phenomenally important. I think they've been important in everybody's life. I, I, I think we, we take them for granted like we do the post office. You know, we, all the times you, you know, as a kid you run to the library or you, all the times in my life I would be, in various stages of my life, I remember lying on the floor or sitting against the books in the theater arts section of whatever library, um, all over the various areas that I lived, like in the, in the San Fernando Valley and later on in, 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 in different places in Los Angeles, in the theater arts section looking for plays and having them piled up next to me with, I remember, you know, you're late, and be there for the afternoon going through every play I could find, looking for scenes that when I was in, you know, acting classes and uh, being able to go in and do research. I remember taking my, my, my sons there when they were doing research on papers and going to the card cat, you know, doing, an, and as technology changed and you could find uh, research differently. So I think we, we take them for granted how important they are in, our American culture, um, they're phenomenally uh, important. And sometimes I worry about them um, because sometimes I wonder who's funding them in these difficult times. Um, and yet I see new libraries uh, you know, being built um, around. I go, thank God. Um, and I hope we never uh, um, lose track of how extraordinarily valuable they are to, to all of us. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Join us next month as we prep for the 2019 ALA Midwinter Meeting in Seattle with recommendations on what to do and where to eat in Emerald City. If you have something to say to us, Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, or send me an email at deweydecibel at ala.org. Send us show ideas, thoughts, comments, complaints, everything. We want to hear from you. Also, iTunes users, rate us, review us. Your words help us rise in the rankings and reach more ears. As always, I'm Phil Morehart from American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Happy New Year, everybody.